Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net for more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis. This is Sojo.net. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Eddie Glaude about a third American founding and the role of the nation's current reckoning in all of that. Eddie Glott is a columnist for Time Magazine and a regular contributor on MSNBC. Dr. Eddie Glott is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor and Chair of African American Studies at Princeton University and former president of the American Academy of Religion. He is a, a colleague and a friend and someone whose voice is being lifted up here with James Baldwin again at just the right moment in time. So I'm blessed to have this conversation with you today, Eddie. Thanks for joining us. Man, it's my pleasure. This is um, this is an honor. So welcome to the Soul of the Nation, Eddie. Let me just ask to start. Just how is your spirit these days in the midst of all of this? How how is your spirit? You know, it depends on the day. You know, sometimes it's. Uh... Sometimes I'm, I find myself uh, uh, drawing on the lyrics of Thomas Dorsey, you know, I'm tired, I'm, I'm worn, I'm weary, you know, but uh, for the most part, you know, I, I'm finding the, the energy and, and the resolve to fight my way through whatever I'm experiencing. So, you know, it's, it's, it's depressing at times, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, I feel, I feel, I feel fortified, if that makes sense. Yeah. I know you've been writing this book, you say, for 30 years, but also for the last several months, you've been working so hard on this, and yet you didn't know what the timing would be at all about the release of this book. It was uh, pre-COVID and pre this moment of racial reckoning we're having now. And in beginning, and you say you think you think with James Baldwin here, you are writing with James Baldwin. It's almost like a, a spiritual experience of looking back on history, studying Baldwin's life and essays, then reflecting on your own life and our time, bringing all of that to bear on this current moment in this country. Can you say more about that experience of all that, what that's meant for you, particularly to have it be released at this moment? You know, it's, it's, it's kismet, it's providential, whatever word you want to reach for. They initially, no, the book initially was supposed to come out April 24th, and then COVID hit. And then they pushed it back to August 4th, two days after uh, Baldwin's birthday. And then Minneapolis happened. And we were in the middle of Minneapolis. And, and I found myself on MS MSNBC answering questions, trying to uh, provide a language for the nation. And I kept finding myself really, Jim, just drawing on the, you know, the formulations of Baldwin, drawing on what I had written. Uh, and so the press decided to move it up, and it seemed like like it was perfect. Like I had written it like a few weeks after the George Floyd event. So what I think um, at the end of the day, I had decided to not write a, a biography of Baldwin, that I, I wanted to, to, to write something about our moment. And I was in Heidelberg, and I saw in Heidelberg on the, I think I wasn't in the country for two hours. And I saw police with their knee in the back of a black man. And 
it became this this moment and i went and i journaled i went back to my apartment and i journaled and and i realized then that you know the book was coming into view that i had to speak about this this current moment the moment that i that i was in and i needed to 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 engage baldwin to help me do so and that's when the book started to take shape you understand this language better than most but it's it's feeling to me like this could be and should be to use that biblical language, a Kairos moment, Kronos time, regular time, but this is, explain how this could be that kind of Kairos time, a, a time when things change, when a spiritual, cultural change, not just normal time, Kronos, but Kairos, a time that can change more than just the tick-tocking of the clock. You know, it, just, it's, it seems like so much is in order or, in a, you know, it's all in alignment, you know, all of the contradictions are in view whether we're talking about a global pandemic, whether we're talking about racial unrest, economic devastation, everything about the last 40 years, all the problems that we've experienced over the last few generations in this country are all in view. And there's a clamoring, there's a, there's a desire for something different, that we know that this place is broken. And, and then there's this eruption of the spirit that orients us to the moment, which gives us this opportunity to radically transform, right, our certain our circumstance, not to tinker around the edges, but to radically transform. And I think that's what makes it a kind of Kairos moment. Or to put it in secular terms, you know, it's, it's what any any genuine crisis is about, right? In the medical sense of the word crisis, right? It's either the either we're going to die, or we're going to come out and and reveal something different. I mean, it's, it's, you're right at that moment, that conjunctural moment where everything is about to collapse and everything is possible all at, all at once. Wow. You and Jimmy Baldwin, I love the way you call him Jimmy Baldwin. He liked to call himself that. There's an intimacy in that, that I really feel with you and he in the book. This book is really, I think, a commentary on John eight thirty two when Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And what he's saying there is that truth and freedom are inextricably linked. And the first chapter of Begin Again is about, quote, the lie that founded America, that white lives matter more than black lives. You write that the lie's most pernicious effect when it comes to our history is to malform events to fit the story whenever America's innocence is threatened by reality. This is a commentary on what Jesus said that without truth, we're in bondage. Yes. I mean, it's so true, you know? It is so true. I mean, the lie has... I mean, that that that, that formulation that you read is so important because what, what it is is that at any moment in which the reality of who we are is revealed, we assert the lie in order to, to, to disfigure it, right? Because we don't want to see ourselves. We're constantly evading who we take ourselves to be. And the lie is so... How can I say? It, it distorts and disfigures everything. And it distorts and disfigures not only democracy, but our character so that we can't become the kinds of people that democracies require. And so I think you're right to, to invoke Johnny, right? That, that is to say that we have to uh, tell the truth, confront the lie, uh, so that that could release, because it will release us into a, the possibility of a different way of being in the world. How the lie disfigures us. You, that, I was really struck this morning uh, by the way, people say books are must-reads. My friends, all listening here, this is a must-read. So you talk how Baldwin invokes Revelations 2.5. Consider how 
far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Then you quote Baldwin, to do your first works over means to re-examine everything, to go back to where you started, or as far back as you can examine all of it, travel your road again and tell the truth about it, sing it, shout it, or testify to keep it to, or keep it to yourself, but know from whence you came. Then you go on to, I think, speak very powerfully about what Baldwin calls the price of the ticket. It says, white Americans, in the generality, white America has, Baldwin argued, has refused to do such a thing, to go back, to do the first works over again, because the exploration itself would reveal that the price of the ticket to be here in the United States was in fact to leave behind the particulars of Europe and become white. That transformation choked many a human being to death because to become white meant the subjugation of others, an act that disfigured the soul by closing off the ability to see oneself in others and to see them in oneself. Yeah, you know, that's that's really that's really a key point in the sense that the price of the ticket that's, you know, Jimmy gets that from Dostoevsky. And, and you know, the, uh, this idea that the price of the ticket in this country is that one must become white, which means that one must buy into that, that, that devilish, ghastly bargain, right? That by becoming white, it requires that you deny the dignity and standing of those who are not white, that you participate in, in the ghoulish rituals that secure whiteness, the cruelty and barbarity that sustain it. It requires my subjugation. And what that means for the soul, because Baldwin is very clear, and I'm very clear, that to be committed to white supremacy, it's not, it's, it's not so much what it does to me and my children. Of course, we, we bear the brunt of it, but you need to understand what it does to you, right? That it, not only am I debased, but you are debased at an even deeper level in some ways. So I think in that moment when, when, when Baldwin was saying we need to do our first works over, and then trying to say what, what is at the heart of our reluctance to, to do that. It has something to do, I think, Jim, with this insistence that white identity, white American identity is so bound up with this illusion, this lie of America as the shining city on the hill, that to lose, that to give that up is to give up something too fundamental. It's like removing the cornerstone and everything will fall down. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that the lie is irredeemable, but we aren't. We can actually be better. It takes us past this, still, I think, this even liberal, progressive, left notion of dealing with racism, meaning what people are doing or using their influence for in terms of those most impacted by racism, people of color. And you're saying the history of how that disfiguring of the soul happened, and in doing so to free oneself and the country from the insidious insidious hold of whiteness in order to become as you just were saying, a different kind of person, a different kind of creation, and maybe a different kind of way of being in the world. This is, this is for the salvation of white people, not just to help people of color. You know, in some ways, it's for the salvation of the world, right? Because we know what this ideology has done. We know what it has wrought. It has devastated uh, the world, and it's devastating the planet because it's tethered, bound up, it's tethered to, bound up with Right, this idea that they're disposable people is tethered to, bound up with, right, this 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 approach that we can extract 
from any community, extract resources from the planet. We don't have to care about others. It blinds us to the enveloping power of love. And it, and it, and it distorts our character in such a way, right? That we, again, that we can't be the kinds of people that democracies require. Instead, we, we, we evidence these dispositions, Jim, that, that lead to selfishness and self-interestedness. Explain how this is so different from the kind of incremental reforms that make a more perfect union, which we hear over and over again. You say and begin again that what we need is a third American founding to begin again without this insidious idea of the value gap, which you call the value gap, that continues to get in the way of a new America. So we need an America where becoming white is no longer the price of the ticket. You say, instead, we should set out to imagine a country in the full light of its diversity and with an honest recognition of our sins. And I find that framework, that over that language profoundly helpful in this present moment of, of reckoning. What does this, can you say more about what this third American founding will look like? Well, first, it echoes a lot of what you've been, you've dedicated your life to. In some ways, the third founding, it, 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 it tries to disrupt this idea that who we take ourselves to be as Americans or who white Americans take themselves to be must be connected, bound to this idea of America as the shining city on the hill, as a redeemer nation. It rejects that view. And it says that instead of us trying to posit America as an example of democracy achieved or as always already on the road to a more perfect union, we should think about America as always already on engaged in the work of trying to build a more just society. And what the, will that look like? Well, if we untether, unhook American democracy from this idea of, of the value gap, then we have to engage in repair. We have to begin to build a society that will reflect the value and sacrality of every individual, no matter their color, their zip code, who they love, right, their gender, uh, their physical ability or the like, right? So it's going to require policies that will ensure that the dignity of every human being is recognized by the state and by the community that undergirds the state. So it has everything to do with health care. It has everything, universal health care. It has everything to do with the living wage. It has everything to do with a vibrant, robust public education system. It has something to do, in other words, Jim, with a robust conception of the public good fortified by a public infrastructure of care. And if, that's, if what I'm saying is compelling, that will require reimagining our relationship to one another, our obligation to each other, right? And, and, and that's going to take some hard work. And then I should say this too, very quickly, that's going to require changing the built environment. So it's not just simply, you know, we have Confederate monuments. Those are monuments to an ideology, but so, so is the highway system in Chicago a monument to an ideology. The way in which communities are zoned is a monument to an ideology. We got to rebuild how we live together physically, right? If that makes sense. It does. In fact, in a recent New York Times review of your book, you state that instead of returning to a pre-Trump world, you seek a whole a wholesale re-envisioning, not a complacent restoration. So why is it fundamentally wrong for people to think and talk about going back to normal? That's what you always hear. Going back to normal after Trump. Elaborate on that. That's the, the problem is going back to normal. What normal is? What, you know, what, yeah, you know, what was normal? What was normal is the question we need to ask ourselves. Or oh, what was? Oh, was it okay for uh, the top 1% and the top one tenth of the percent to hoard 
and extract resources from resource-deprived communities? Was it normal that people were dying because they didn't have access to quality health care? Was it normal that the United States uh, was engaged in, in global policies that would leave communities and nations uh, beholden to it? Was it normal that we still had police killing folk, black and brown people, locking folk up at alarming rates? Was it, I mean, we can go on and on about who we were. Like, see, sometimes I think some people are more concerned about civility than they are justice. People are so more concerned about quiet than they are with standing in right relation with their fellows. The way we lived prior to Trump was shot through with domination and cruelty. So are you saying we need more than Biden and a vaccine? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. If there's, we need a vaccine. I know the vaccine we need, but you know, that vaccine is, is love in, 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 in a real sense, right? That kind of hard love that Baldwin talks about in Fire Next Time. But no, we need more than just simply, you know, the calm of, of Trump, Trump out of office or the supposed calm of Trump out of office. Trump is just the tip of the iceberg of what's wrong with us. You know, Jimmy wrote in, in uh, as much truth as, as we could bear. He wrote a line <laughs> That's that, true. That, that, that haunts us. He says, the trouble is deeper than we think because the trouble is in us. Electing Biden is insufficient. So you said you've been on Morning Joe all week this week, and you're saying that there's been this discrepancy between changing public perception or consciousness, like the new Black Lives Matter Plaza that, uh, here in Washington, D.C., and, and the increasing support for Black Lives Matter and all the rest, but policymaking that actually and practically supports Black lives and all of our lives for the first time is critically here. So amidst our hyper polarized political landscape in the 24-hour news cycle that you know so well, you have to comment on that most every day. What kinds of changes, policy changes, structural changes, infrastructure changes, ways of thing, seeing all kinds of things differently should activists and voters have a laser focus upon right now? Well, you know, let's, let's just focus in the context of, of, of policing, shifting the conversation to a broader discourse around public safety. For the last 40 to 50 years, Jim, we have been we have been debating the question of policing in this country within a frame that has been defined by the discourse of law and order and being tough on crime. And within those two, of course, the devastating impacts of the war on drugs on particular communities, particularly communities of color and poor communities across the country. So what we have to do is to change that frame and begin to have a different kind of conversation about safety in this country. That's going to involve decriminalizing so much you can just damn near sneeze in this country and break a law. Right? So we got we got to decriminalize the code. We have to engage in the demilitarization of our police. Police officers should not look like they're fighting in Fallujah as opposed to policing Chicago and policing our little town in Princeton, right? And we need to get rid of qualified immunity uh, where police can act with impunity without fear of, of repercussions or being held, for, held accountable. So these are just like low-hanging fruit, transparency, right? Opening files that police uh, disciplinary files will follow them, right? All of this stuff is basic low-hanging fruit. But then we need to ask the broader question, and this is what the defund the police argument is all about, and people who are who are clamoring and arguing about the phrase are, to my mind, most of them are engaged in bad faith, because what we're talking about is that our budgets reflect what we value. And if you're, if you're allocating $6 billion as they did in Chicago, I mean, in New York, is one of the largest military forces in the world in some 
ways, then you're telling us what you value, right? When we need to be investing in education, when we need to be investing in housing, we need to be investing in healthcare, uh, all the things, the, the underlying factors that lead to crime, that lead to disruption in our community, in our communal living. So I think we need to be laser focused and not let folks get us distracted and let us tinker around the edges and we end up actually spending more money on policing in terms of training, in terms of bias research and unconscious bias training and the like. We need to engage in a different kind of uh, debate. Or, as I put it, we need to build a public infrastructure of care within which the notion of public safety is thought of different. You know, it's so different than what you often hear from people on these big Zoom calls about police reform, about training. Well, I, my experience is that white cops are actually very good at showing restraint and the diminishing of force when it comes to white suspects. They're very good at that. They show a lot of restraint. My Michigan, state of Michigan capital got taken over by men in guns and vests and tremendous restraint was shown letting them wander all over the capital of my home state. But but there was no restraint when Rayshard Brooks just ran away. And and I think a lot of white people now are realizing that if it had been their white kid running away from that cop in Atlanta, that he wouldn't just wouldn't have been shot. So res- restraint has to do with how people are thinking, how they're thinking and feeling, not just about some kind of training of how to show more restraint in situations of conflict. It's a deeper question here. You know, absolutely right. They had his car. They knew he was drunk. He made a mistake uh, by fighting and resisting the police officers. But you knew something was going on when those police officers in Atlanta, after shooting him in the back, kicked him, put their stood on him. They didn't view him as a human being in that moment. And we know that that would not happen to a white brother or sister. And it seems to me that recognizing that honestly being honest with yourself, knowing that that would not happen on the other side of the tracks uh, is the beginning of any fundamental change. So I've said this to you over coffee sometimes, but I'll just say it again here. The reason that I like, that I've really been glad to see you as a commentator, a regular commentator, is commentating is often just part of the blitz, the sort of the soundbite culture that we're always in from one side or the other. And I've often remarked to you that your commentary has the the gift, I think, of taking things to a deeper place. Even in comments about something happening in today's news, you try and take things to a deeper place and not just a predictable political place. For example, in a recent piece for Time, this is very deep stuff here. You wrote, you said, we are caught in a double bind. We need the video footage to convince white America that what is happening to us is real. But that same footage then becomes the stuff of spectacle. Now, we never see the footage of white people being brutalized, but somehow white America needs that footage to be convinced of the mistreatment of black people in America. How do we move beyond that, which you call that double bind? You know, I've been racking my brain around it. You know, if if we didn't have the footage of those three men killing Ahmad Arbery, would they be in jail now? Probably not. You know, certainly not. And so we needed it, but then it was on, on a perpetual loop, and Ahmad Arbery's family had to see it over and over again, be re-traumatized over and over again. 
And, and then you have to make the decision when you see these videos, do I retweet it? Do I put it on my platforms? Am I participating in the pornography of, of, of black suffering and black death? But we, need, but we need to mobilize people because white America just simply won't believe us. Even when you show them that it was in fact a noose, they'll say it wasn't a noose, right? right? Even when, the, when it looked, even if it was an, a rope used as they said it was used, it was tied, that knot was tied like a noose. We know it was, right? So it's, it's a double bind that actually speaks to how sick we all are, if that makes sense, you know? It's like after every unjust death, there's this conversation about the details. Did Trayvon put up a fight? <laughs> did, did, where was, where was Ivory jogging to? What else was happening in Brianna's building? Uh, what did Rayshard have, have to run? And, and finally, these conversations about details after unjust deaths are, are just, are just, uh, they're exhausting people need to know for people of color. It's just exhausting to hear this every single time. And yet it doesn't get to what is really happening. It's not details. It's why did this happen and that it wouldn't have happened. I've got two boys. They're 17 and 21. And none of this stuff would have happened to either of them doing the exact same things that Trayvon did or anybody else we're talking about. And the whole country knows that really down deep. We, we know that's true more than ever. Why don't we just deal with it at that level? We know it's true. This wouldn't happen to my two sons, period, if they were doing the same things at the same time. And what does it mean that we allow it to happen, even though we know? And you know, what's, you know what else, too, at the, at the very personal level, at the, at, the, at the most intimate level? We're having to deal with this in the midst of a global pandemic. Exactly, right. Mm-hmm. right what, you know, my, one of my best friends, his, his mother-in-law died of COVID-19, a uh, Haitian immigrant. His wife, the eldest daughter, had to say goodbye to his mother, to her mother, via FaceTime, and then had to decide that she couldn't go to the funeral to be- to bury her because she didn't want to risk contracting the disease and bringing it back to her children. And on top of that experience, she has to worry about her oldest boy going outside. On top of that experience, she has to then see no, and I'm just being very clear, on top of that experience, she then has to get in the mail a $75,000 medical bill. And so when we talk about what does it mean to be a different kind of human being for us to be together differently, we have to first be able to say together that that's barbaric, that that's evil in some ways. Everything I just described, right, not only borders on cruelty, but speaks volumes about who we, who we are, it seems to me. But we have a we have a an extraordinarily good way of sticking our heads in the sand when it comes to these matters. But then we have to go to what you said a moment ago. This is barbaric. This is cruel. This is wrong. But the question is, why do we continue to allow it? And that's the question I think for a lot of white liberal progressive people. Like th- this whole reckoning, as you know, is hitting us all at, at a cultural level, at a, a grassroots, our own lives, not just in on MSNBC and C-SPAN, like, you know, my boys are both baseball players. And so the coach called for a team Zoom meeting with all the players and the family. And we thought it was going to be about when do we start practicing again and how we do that safely and the rest. Instead, he put a coach on that we all know. He's an African-American coach in D.C. Jared came on, and a lot of us know him. I, he's a 
really a great young man, but he told his story that most of them hadn't heard before, which is that when he was in college in New York, about to enter a senior season with a real chance of getting drafted, he really was good. And but one night he was driving with his buddies, all black varsity athletes in New York. They weren't doing anything and they were stopped and arrested for crime where they were nowhere near the place and three white perpetrators did it finally in the end, but they got arrested and he got kicked off his senior baseball team and missed the season and didn't get drafted. Now, every kid in that call, little league kid, thinks they're going to be drafted by the MLB, right? That's what they're hoping for. And so so at the end, we, we could s- say to them, do you guys think that what happened to Jared, this coach you know and love, do you think that was okay? That was something, yeah, it was, or just wrong, but just bad? Or are things change only when a new generation says that is no longer tolerable. That is no longer acceptable. It's not impossible to change. And I'm going to change it. So I said to these kids at the end, I said, you, you guys know Jared, what happened to him? Is that something you think is okay? If not, are you going to change it? Are you going to change it? And so that becomes the question. What do we not just say is bad and we're horrified and then go back to our television show or what do we say? We're not going to allow that anymore. What does, there's a real difference there. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because we have, we have a penchant in this country to, to rush to self-congratulation. So we'll paint Black Lives Matter in front of, you know, Fifth Avenue and then pat ourselves on the back and then expect gratitude. Or, you know, we'll march and shout the phrase and, and think that that's enough or take down Robert E. Lee or, or do and think that that's enough. When in fact, we know that there are structural elements, realities that we have to address. You know, I, I, I found myself during these times being asked the question, you know, tell us about the talk you give to your son, you know, the talk about policing. And I'm saying this after the story you just told, Jim, because it's so important. And I found myself refusing to talk about the talk. Um, and I said, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to detail what I say to my son about how he should respond to the police. I prefer you to tell me what you're telling your children. What stories are you telling your children about race? What are you saying to your children about these police officers? How are you addressing these issues when these hor- horrific events happen? And it seems to me we need to flip the script because the problem, the problem isn't us. And I need my children, I need, I need my son to understand that. I need these young people to understand that. At the level in which we're talking about, the problem isn't us. And we and we have to we have to we have to understand that fully. And even in this town, DC, we got often you know liberal progressive parents of little league baseball kids, and those those progressive liberals don't even know that er, like every black player I've ever coached has had the talk with mom or dad, and they don't even know about that talk. And so we started started to have that talk in the dugout with the players. What do each of us hear from our parents about police? And the white parents said, "Well, that's going to really." Uh, that's going to really upset the kids. I said, yeah, that's the point. That's the point. And when the white kids here with their black teammates and classmates are told about the talk and police and law enforcement, they get really mad because often your best friends are your teammates uh, if you're an athlete, right? So you, you and Baldwin both have compelling and concise criticisms of white liberals and white liberalism throughout your book. In a recent interview with Vox, I thought you really got to this. You explain that racial equality cannot be a philanthropic enterprise, a thing white people can give to others. You go on to say that as long as we do that, we're still captured 
by the belief that some people have more value than others. So how do we evade this framework this, that, that is so prominent still in organizations across the political spectrum? Does it start with what you call, unquote, I love this, uncompromising description of the problem of racism in our, in our nation? How do we narrate America differently and not just have it some people who are trying to be supportive of other people? I mean, I think, you know, that cuts to the heart of what I'm, what I'm trying to do and begin again. You know, Baldwin says that he's suspicious of people who want to do things for him as opposed to with him. Racial justice, racial equality is not a charitable enterprise. So how then, how then do, we, do we attack this, this issue? We have to do so with an eye to build a more just world, right? And, and that's a different orientation. You're not, I'm not asking you to do something for me. I'm asking you to join me in building a more just world. And, and once we get there, once we change that frame, then we're in a different place. So whenever uh, white colleagues ask me, what can I do? Well, what, what do you think will be a more just world? How can you, how, how, where, where does that look, what does that look like for you with regards to questions of racial inequality, racial inequality, right? Oh, it's around policing. Okay, let's talk about this in, with regards to policing. Let's start look. So move out of this, this philanthropic model where you can just give something and then assuage your conscience and go back to your segregated apartment in, my, in Manhattan and rather commit, your, commit yourself to building a more just world. And I think the best of the black freedom tradition, right, sees that when we're arguing for the things that, when King was arguing for the things that he was arguing for, it wasn't reducible to black people. It opened doors for poor people, women, uh, LGBTQI, I mean, a range of folks, right? So, so it seems to me that the way in which we orient ourselves to this work properly is, that, is to change the nature of our end, that the end is not a more perfect union, that the end is not that I will feel good about myself. The end, rather, is a new Jerusalem. This is so important. I, you, I heard about a clip on C-SPAN of a viewer exasperated by your painful and persistent description of our nation's racial injustice, and the viewer accused you of being divisive and tearing us apart. In this recent Vox interview, you remarked, we cannot compromise our description of the problem because we are afraid that it's going to make white people more racist. <laughs> and But what you do in this book and what you you are doing in these conversations is really, I think you're, you, are, you are calling out and correcting the narrative of America's history as an act of love. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, um, it, you know, there's this wonderful moment in No Name in the Street, Jim. Um, I, and it's, it's funny, I have the book right next to me. And in No Name in the Street, it's, it's perhaps Baldwin is angry, he's rageful, it's a book of wounding, of trauma. But he has this paragraph that I think is so important that speaks to what you just said. To be an Afro-American or an American Black is to be in the situation intolerably exaggerated of all those who have ever found themselves part of a civilization which they could in no wise honorably defend, which they were compelled indeed endlessly to attack and condemn, and who yet spoke out of the most passionate love, hoping to make the kingdom new, to make it honorable and worthy of life. At the end of the book, you have this wonderful uh, narrative of your visiting what are called the legacy museums, sometimes the, the, sometimes the lynching museums in, in uh, 
Montgomery, our good friend Brian Stevenson, has done this amazing thing. And you quote Maya Angelou, who apparently up on the side of the wall, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. And that's what you're, this is an act of love to free us from the bondage of not knowing the truth. If we don't know the truth, we're in bondage. And so you want to free us all. This is so different than the usual left-right conversations about race. Knowing you a little bit, I'm, let me sit here. Knowing you, I'm quite compelled. This is the last question. I'm quite compelled by your reflections on the battle between despair and hope. You do this so well in your book about James Baldwin's own life and his battle with despair and hope in your own life right now during this national reckoning. So as a thinker, writer, scholar, and a black man in America like Baldwin was, how do you navigate this battle each day? And as the Bible puts it, in such a time as this. Wow. I have a chapter in the book, Jim, called Elsewhere. Um, and it's, it's an odd chapter in, in the structure of the book. Uh, because I remember having a, an argument with my editor and he was like, why don't you go interview activists? And I said, we're always asking activists to tell us something. Why don't we give them something? And what I found is that when Baldwin collapsed, fell to pieces after the assassination of Dr. King, he had to find an elsewhere. And it was Istanbul. He found a community of folk who loved him to death who allowed him to laugh full belly laughs and to rage, to deal with his own madness, to put the pieces together again. And so the way in which I manage my despair is actually in community with others, people who will allow me the space to be my fallen, fragile self and to be wounded and vulnerable so that I can get, so I can pick up the pieces and replenish the strength and get back in the fight again. It's an ongoing battle, but we all have to find our elsewheres. There's a lot of white people, I think, that are trying to deal with confronting all this for the first time and, you know, various versions of being woke. And they're trying to ask often, well, what's my place or what's my role? And and you said something in a conversation before this one just this morning that I thought was very, very insightful. You talked about the difference between he said, between white people and those people who happen to be white. <laughs> Say what you mean by that. Yeah, you know, he makes that distinction in his last book, The Evidence of Things Not Seen, about the Atlanta child murders in 87. But, you know, it's a distinction that matters, right? Those people who happen to be white are those folks who are engaged in the ongoing interrogation of how whiteness has distorted their characters and how it malforms the way in which we live our lives, right? So they are engaged in an ongoing critique of, of this ideology in themselves. I mean, this is what, you know, Wendell Berry talks about in that classic little book, The Hidden Wound. As, as, as a Kentucky-born white person, he's always engaged in an interrogation about how racist language has helped shape how he sees the world. And so I happen to love a lot of people who happen to be white, and then they're white people. 
and white people are those folk who are invested in the structures as they are. They find the nat they find it natural the natural order of things that dis that advantage and disadvantage are distributed in the way that they are along the lines of who's valued and who's not valued. Uh, and so I want to reject that notion. And let me be clear here. I you know begin again is not a how to manual. It's not a how to be anti racist. It's it's a call it's a call for us to be different. To choose to choose life differently. That's I think that cuts a bit bit deeper than you know these how to manuals. That distinction I think is is striking to me because when we you were talking the other night about this whole need for imagination, reimagination, and how can we imagine beyond you know funding police and re, public safety and all the rest. And wh when I was hearing that conversation, I was struck by how it's going to be white people, you know, in that, in that standard sense of white, white people are going to want to limit the conversation. <laughs> okay, but let's not go here, or isn't that too far, or let's find somewhere in the middle, or they, they're going to want to limit the imagination of what we can do now. And right now, the, the, op, the calling, the moment, the invitation is to imagine everything, reimagine everything. And, and white people who are being white people are going to want to limit the conversation about imagination where people who happen to be white but want to be in that conversation about reimagining can just join the conversation and go with it wherever it does indeed indeed i mean look i think you know we have a finite amount of civic energy i don't want to spend my energy trying to convince those who hold noxious views that they ought not to have them i i want to spend my time trying to build a world where those noxious views have no quarter to breathe. In this moment, too many people have thrown their bodies into the breach to open up this space. We have a chance to be, to radically change how this country understands itself, how we live our lives together. We cannot turn our backs on this moment and tinker around the edges. If we do, I'm convinced, Jim, that we will seal, seal our fate. So I don't, I don't want to spend time trying to compromise with those who refuse to imagine that we can, in fact, be otherwise. You know, one of those, you, you students have been so formative to your life, and many of your students have told me how formative you have been to their lives. And one came over yesterday who was, works for Sojourners now, and, and he got talking to my son, Jack, who's about to go to college, and my other son is, is Luke, who's just finishing. And, and to hear these young men at night, for that's the blessing of the COVID time for us as we're just with our two boys for dinner every night, these long conversations. And they, when they hear what you're saying about refounding, third founding, new founding, they just want to be part of that. That's, you know, they're, 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 not, they're at the beginning of their lives and their adult lives and their careers and vocations. So they're just starting. And they aren't, you know, depressed by Trump. He's what is. He's 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 the one who shows where we are. He's he's he's, he's symptomatic. He's revelatory. He's not. He didn't cause anything. He's he's an example of of our worst, of our very worst. And so for them, it's like it's like okay, let's be a part of the new founding, the refounding. What our lives are going to be about the, about the third founding. And if young people throw themselves into that third founding. That's the, the energy that I feel right now that's in the streets and in my own home at dinner time. That's the energy that's going to really turn us in a different direction. 
that's the energy that will nurture the soil for new America. So we'll see. Well, my friend, uh, thank you for, uh, for this book, but more even for, um, the way you like Jimmy Baldwin want to think and write and go deeper in how this can change us, change the world, but also change us and how finally the world gets changed. Well, when a lot of us are asking, what does it mean for us to change and be part of that change? So you're, you're doing that. And I'm very grateful for uh, your commentary and your witness, as they say, in in my world and how you're a catalyst for a new generation who I'm talking to every day who are very excited about this. So bless you and uh, we'll uplift you in our prayers. You've got a very very busy schedule these days speaking about all this. So so take care of yourself and know that a lot of us are lifting you up. Well, thank you and I love you very much and, and let's continue to do this work together. I'm blessed to walk this journey with you. Thank you for joining us, Eddie Glaude. To hear more from Eddie, follow him on Twitter at S Glaude, E-S Glaude, and check out his new book, Begin Again. James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Follow me if you want on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you from the soul of a nation. Thank you.